What have we been learning in Hebrews? We've been learning that Jesus is what? Please. He's better, right? Uh, I'm not the first one to pick up on this theme. Many have before, but the word better keeps coming up in Hebrews. And so we keep learning that Jesus is better. Now, we're used to that statement, but try it in the marketplace. Try, try that in public. Try that in the workplace. Just say, you know what? Jesus is better. Here's someone talking about religion and just show up and say, I, I've got a message for you, a message from God. <laughs> Jesus is better. Well, how do you think that's going to go over? Well, it's not very politically correct. It certainly uh, steps on toes. It doesn't seem to be sensitive. But what's so interesting in the book of Hebrews is you've got the one religion that God ever started through Abraham, if you will. And still, God says, Jesus is better. And now, why would he do that? Well, not because Jesus is better, but we're waiting for the best, but because Jesus is better than all of those other things, because he is the best, because, get this, even in the one true religion that God started, all of, that we, all of those things we've seen have been shadows. They've been in anticipation. They've been waiting for the actual arrival of the person who is none other than God's eternal son. Jesus is better because he's the fulfillment. He's what we've been waiting for. As Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken. That is climactically, magnificently through his son. Jesus is the one who came and submitted himself to the law of God that we break. Jesus is the one who came and died a sinner's death because we're lawbreakers. Jesus is the one who rose again from the dead victoriously. And Jesus is the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes. He pleads our case. He claims us as his own. Jesus is better. Jesus is the climax. Jesus is the focus of it all. This is what we've been learning, and it's been great, and it's been grand, and I love Christ more than I did before Hebrews. I hope the same is true of you. I just want to do Hebrews over again. The question before us in chapter 13, that chapter 13 answers, how should we respond? What should we do? How should we respond? Well, we should believe, yes, but, but those of us who believe... How should you respond to this Jesus who is best, this Jesus who is everything? What should you do in your job, in your marriage, in your functioning in the body of Christ, your functioning outside of the body of Christ? How should you respond in gratitude? It's tremendously practical, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Responses, fitting responses. You could say the right response is worship, that you'd be right. That's like Paul and... Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But how, how, what does our worship look like, if you will? And you can, if you'd like to write down 10 words this morning, I think 10 words capture 10 fitting responses that we get to the perfect work of Christ. So here's how it goes. If you believe the gospel, you see Jesus as everything, as your righteousness, as, as your reconciliation to God, as, as your hope and, and, and security of resurrection, then what? How do you live your life tomorrow? Ten reasonable responses. The first one covers the most verses. We can have it in the word love. 
Love is first, and it covers the first six verses. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would. He says, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Back in chapter 6, verse 10, he affirmed these believers he's addressing as loving other believers. And he said, good job, you've done that. But now there's tension. Now there's pressure to not do that anymore. Maybe because of the persecution, because of circumstances. And he's saying, you know what? If you say you're a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to let brotherly love continue. Love each other in the body of Christ the way you would a sibling. Now, he's assuming we're not over, overly dysfunctional like some of us are, right? Who don't get along with our siblings. He, he's assuming just mildly dysfunctional, maybe, because we're all dysfunctional to agree or another. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The idea is there are a few things I wouldn't do for my brother or my sister. Physical brother or sister. Well, as you are believing in Christ and I am believing in Christ and we've been reconciled to God through him, then we should be able to work through differences and work together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let it continue. And to the degree that we struggle with it, because we do, what's the solution? Well, the solution, I would take it in light of Hebrews, is to keep going back to Christ and the gospel and the reconciling work that he's performed on our behalf. And to the degree that we get to understand that better, the degree that we can get along with each other better. We've got to keep going back to the gospel. It's a fitting response for us to be brotherly about this. In a family, there might be conflicts, but somehow we're still blood. We've got to get through this. Well, we've been bought by blood, so we've got to get through this. And then if we continue on, he says, still talking about love in verse 2, do not neglect, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So now we're not talking about brothers, we're talking about strangers. It seems like the focus is now on unbelievers. Strangers could fit believers too, I suppose. But the emphasis is on hospitality, which is another kind of love. A little bit different than in first century than now, right? They didn't have Marriott. Um, a big part of hospitality was with travelers because they needed shelter and they needed food. And so are you going to put yourself in a vulnerable position to help them or not? Because what if they take advantage of you? So it looks different today, but hospitality, you're treating someone as if they're family, even though they're not family, even if they're not a Christian. It's a good message for some of us to hear. I want you to show hospitality to strangers. Yeah, but, but, but what if, hey, go back to the gospel. Christ showed you great love when you weren't part of his family. So this is a way we show our Christianness, if you will, by showing hospitality even to strangers. He gives a little bit more in verse 2, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. If you want a reason, reason enough should be the gospel, but another reason is, hey, historically, you know what? In the case of Abraham, for example, going back to Genesis is what he would have in mind here. You know, he, he, he interacted with strangers and oh, lo and behold, one was an angel of the Lord. And lo and behold, a couple of the other ones were angels and they brought him good news. They showed themselves to actually be the blessers, if you will, of him. Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 19. They had brought the greater blessing, a message from God. And here all along, they were strangers to begin with. But there's vulnerability involved and it may work out extraordinarily. Verse 3 then says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. 
chapter 11, verse 37, talk about those who were, who were mistreated because of their devotion to Christ. I take it in light of the flow. These are people who were imprisoned because of their devotion to Christ. It's probably not just the generic be nice to people in jail, although there might be a place for that, showing hospitality to strangers. But the focus here seems to be, these are people who, who are mistreated, who are imprisoned, same kind of category, and they're in the body. They're fellow believers. They're believers who've, who've been persecuted because of righteousness, it would seem. And I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone in Omaha, Nebraska, who because of righteousness, because of the gospel devotion to Christ, they've been sentenced to jail. They've been incarcerated. So direct application is a little tougher in Omaha. Now, that doesn't mean we might do a secondary, you can't do a secondary application and say incarcerated and persecuted while they're there for being believers. Yep, let's have ministry there. Absolutely. But even keep it more generic. Those who are mistreated. Remember those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. You know what? There, there's a, there, there's a, a union with them. We're part of the body of Christ and they're mistreated so you should feel some pain and be burdened and pray for them. And if you need some help with this and you say, I can't apply this verse because I don't know anybody this has really happened to, certainly you know somebody who's been mistreated because of the gospel. And if you want it to be a little bit broader, and this might be more helpful on the imprisoned side of things, think globally. Not too terribly often, but now and then I go to persecution.com. Some of you are familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. Well, how about that pastor in Iran that I seemingly don't care anything about? I should care. And pray for him. Pray for devotion. Pray for perseverance. Pray for fidelity. Pray if it would be God's will that he would be released. But there is this call for us as Christians who in light of the gospel should have a burden that's bigger than just our own burden. And we have a burden for other people because you're part of the body. And we probably could do better at this. Speaking for myself, certainly. What are they going through? This is real life. It's an appropriate response to the gospel, a response of love. And then another area of love is in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The sexually immoral, the pornea, and the adulterous. I don't think God got the tweet that I got on Friday um, from a health magazine that I subscribe to. Uh, the headline was, The Curse of the Cohabitating Couple Debunked. Curse Smurfs. Research shows that shacking up together before marriage isn't such a bad move after all. By Katie Kearns. I'll name her to protect the guilty or not. <laughs> Scientifically proven that it's better to try it before you buy it. Science proves. Here, God says, oh, by the way, God, who in Genesis chapter 2 made marriage. I have a man, I have a woman, be together. God says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let it be prized. Let it be protected. Like a treasure 
You protect that purity because there's judgment apart from that because that's what unbelievers do. Believers don't act like unbelievers. Think of it in these terms. God makes people, men, women, and designs the way to have a relationship is through marriage. All right? With me so far? And we rebel against him. We've rebelled. Then Jesus saves us from our sins, atones for our sins, reconciles us to God. And now we say, oh, we're so grateful. We have so much gratitude. What should we do? What would be appropriate? Honor God by acting according to his will. That would make sense. Now that you've been reconciled to me, now I want you to start treating me like I'm God. That's all. Love your spouse. Love your spouse. Show your love within marriage if it's sexual kinds of love. Honored, prized, like it's a word that's used for precious stones. It's going to be protected. And the great news is, this is not salvation by morality. We would see elsewhere that, you know what? The room is filled with a bunch of sexual perverts. To be honest and frank, to pervert something. God says husband and wife, and we do otherwise. That's a perversion, a twisting. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, And such were some of you. But you were cleansed, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. It's all this Christ stuff. And then, therefore, let's live like it in light of the gospel. It's a fitting response. We, of all people, should seek to have sexual purity in response to what Christ has done. Because now we are going to act toward God the way he wants us to. Not so we can earn our salvation, but because Christ has earned it for us. And it's a fitting response for us. Every wedding I've ever officiated, I want to say something about this to begin with. Every wedding and say, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And it's great to be able to say, we can praise God today that so-and-so and so-and-so are honoring God by entering into a relationship according to the will of God. Honoring Him. So I love it that this is a practical way to respond to the gospel. I hope you love it as well. Let's keep going now. Verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All right. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. We won't go there. Talk about how these believers he's addressing have gone without. They've been persecuted. They know what it's like to sacrifice and stand up for Christ, even if it means money. And now he's saying, you've got to keep on that track. Don't, don't be persuaded. Don't be tempted to say, yeah, but if I'm faithful to Christ, I'm going to lose my income. You know what? Have it not be about your income. You could apply it more generically. Don't have love for money be your driving passion. But in a real sense, sometimes you've got to weigh the costs. If I'm going to pursue Christ, there's going to be cost involved. Or if I'm pursuing my love for my things, there's going to be a cost involved when it comes to my devotion to Christ. A fitting response for you and for me in light of what Christ has done for us is to have our hearts beat with a passion for the glory of Christ more so than it would for our things. It's pretty straightforward. It's just hard to do. And what's cool to see is the fact that it's God's unfailing presence 
that promotes this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, in Christ, look at that great promise. We don't have to worry about our things. Verse 6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So you do sense this persecution uh, flavor. The money does seem, be, seem to be tied to, to, if I'm devoted to Christ, there might be repercussions. Hey, what can man do to me? Nothing is the answer. I love that quotation by David Livingston, one of my favorite quotations. I have it written in this Bible. I should write it in every Bible I have. David Livingston said, famous missionary to Africa, until my work is done, I am immortal. It's a good one. Whenever I'm in a scary place, uh, unsure of circumstances. I love that quotation because it would end up being true and right and biblical. You know what? God is sovereign. God is in charge. He promised to take care of his own. So I need not fear because my number won't be up until my work is done. It's a good one. It's not entirely related to what we're talking about, but I really like the quote. (laughs) It's somewhat related. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. And so you don't fear the small things even that would relate to money. I'm going to be devoted to Christ first and foremost with a, with a measure of fearlessness. Let's move on to number two. Did I say we're going to do ten of these? We are. We'll go fast now. Number two, second appropriate, appropriate response, imitate. In one word, imitate. And specifically, imitate leaders who have finished well. Verses 7 and 8 are going to encourage us to imitate leaders who have finished well. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders. That's the command. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And that's where I get the idea that it, it seems that they've, they've finished. They're done. They've already run their race. Commentators would have us to know that 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 seems to indicate that they've died. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So you want to get through the hard times? How can I respond? How can I persevere? One way is remember the leaders you've had who taught you the word of God. Imitate them. Sort of like chapter 11. You want to get through and and, and persevere? Remember those other believers. Well, remember the people who've been in your life, who've taught you the word of God, and look how it ended for them. And imitate them. Imitate them. This is very much an elaboration on chapter 11. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have that many people I know of like this. People in my life who've taught me the word of God the truth about Christ, and have finished the race, have breathed their last and have stepped into eternity, if that's what he's talking about here. I don't have that many I know. There are some I know. Maybe you know more than I do. Think about them when you're tempted to not continue. Oh, yes, think about Christ. But as you're thinking about Christ, think about other believers who persevered and find encouragement in that. This is one of the reasons I like dead Christians. They don't let you down. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just nice. I mean, I pray, Lord, take me out. It's easy. I ride a motorcycle. You know, take me out before I just jack up the whole thing and have no credibility whatsoever. It just be, would be better that way. 
So, but I like dead Christians because they finished the race. And no one's perfect, but you can at least look back in the life and say, David Livingston, at least he's dead. I put a lot of stock in that. And I know he wasn't perfect, but he finished the race. A couple of my favorite ones, if you need some, some dead people to like. Um, <laughs> I, and they're buried in the same place. That's where they come to mind. But John Owen and John Bunyan are two dead guys I really like who finished well. Uh, maybe because of the diversity, John Bunyan was uneducated but had a profound mind and was persecuted and devoted to the end, although he was imperfect. Pilgrim's Progress, you know? Not the guy with the big ox, different guy. Um, and John Owen, who was Mr. Academician, Brainiac, Oxford guy, and was in the upper echelons influencing Cromwell. Both of them buried in a place called Bunhill Fields in London where the nonconformists are buried because they're not worthy of a church burial. And it had to do with their devotion to Christ. I love it. I like dead Christians who finished well. Remember them and imitate their faith. They went through hardship and difficulty, but they prized Christ according to the work of the Spirit in their life, and they went to the very end, be like them, respond to the gospel in that way. And then verse 8 is so good in context when we don't steal it away. Verse 8 supports this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just so good to hear that voice coming from somewhere other than Betty Boop on the Trinity Broadcasting Network or something to prove some kind of aberration. We don't get Trinity Broadcasting Network here, so you don't know who I'm talking about, apparently. Praise the Lord. Well, that's the name of the show, but anyway. <laughs> no, that's Benny Hinn's show. <laughs> it's, it's here, and it's so good, and, and it's meant to help you persevere in this context. Please Remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Connect the dots with me if you would. Those who you've known, who've gone before you, who persevered to the end, who were focusing on Christ, you know what? It's the same Christ. They didn't have some other Christ, and now somehow you need a different Christ. If you're going to make it to the end, the very Christ you need to trust in that we've learned about in the book of Hebrews is the same Christ that Bunyan trusted in. Or your grandmother Lois or whoever it might be. Whoever you're thinking of. He's the same. Don't forget that Jesus is the same. And so we trust Him just like our ancestors have trusted Him. Those who have. Then um, pretty amazingly that verse becomes important. It, it becomes the bridge verse uh, between 7 and 9. And we'll move on to nine now, but we have a third word that's appropriate as far as responses go, and that's the word discern. Discern. Discern between true gospels, false gospels. This is verses nine to twelve. So if Jesus saved me, he's best, he's the ultimate. What how do I respond? I need to be a discerning Christian. I can't be a gullible Christian. I need to be a discerning Christian. You need to be a discerning Christian. So love and discernment coexist. It's nicely done and the gospel unites both of them. Verse 9 says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And what you have to do is draw a line, I think, here. Take, I mean, if I were you, I would draw an arrow from verse 8 to verse 7 and then from verse 8 to verse 9 because it complements both of them. And if you do that, I'll read this verse this way. 
Again, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. After all, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hello, duh. Newsflash, you know. Do, 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 do. Why would I go after something new and trendy? Oh, I've got this new revelation about Jesus, and I did this, and I did that, and have you got the book? Can't believe this book. It's amazing. New stuff. And it's different from what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, don't go after strange and, and weird, diverse teachings. Novelty is bad. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's going to be eternally relevant. So I love it that it helps us in that sense. Verse 9 goes on to say, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace, I think, here is shorthand for everything we've been learning about Jesus in Hebrews, about his perfect work on our behalf, about his righteousness. We need to be strengthened by that and not some new thing. It's diverse and strange. Be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by the gospel. Be strengthened by Christ. Be strengthened by Him. And then he says, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. I don't know about you, but I, I, I seem to read that with some irony. You know, don't be, don't be persuaded by some weird kind of bent off the gospel, some offshoot, and they have to do with these food laws and all this stuff. And by the way, those foods haven't benefited those people, have they? No. Isn't it weird how so many different religious twists and perversions and isms and schisms have to do with food? There's always some kind of laws. And then there's always some kind of food laws. If you've never read anything by Ellen White, don't. Um, but E.G. White, really the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, has got some really bizarro things. I've been to a Seventh-day Adventist food store one time. Why am I talking about this? But anyway, <laughs> for another time, okay? It just So you can't eat meat, but you make hot dogs out of vegetables that look like hot dogs, so you can look like you're eating something you're not supposed to eat anyway. Um, why am I talking about this? To make the point, you're going to invent a religion or you're going to pervert the gospel, you've got to add laws because you can't rest in Christ and all that he has done. And invariably, there's some kind of food thing involved. How about this? Even where there were legitimate food laws in the Old Testament, Christ fulfilled the law of the Old Testament, right? So even with the legitimate laws, not to mention the Ellen White goofy laws, Christ fulfilled the law. There's no place for it. You know, you should worship Jesus by having the shrimp. Okay? Go for it. Can't convince my wife to, but... It's, it's Christ. Exalt Christ. He fulfilled the law. Don't be persuaded by weird food laws. Yeah, but it's really good for your health. Great. Go for it for health reasons. But as soon as somehow it helps you with your relationship to God, it is a strange and diverse teaching. And I'm trusting in Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's my rock. He's my righteousness. We've got to remember that. It's a fitting response. It's an appropriate response. And then he starts kind of playing mean guy here a little bit. Um, and by the way, chapter 9, verse 10 talked about this. We won't go back to do that. Um, I made a note here to myself. Food laws of the Old Testament 
uh, had a date on the package, so to speak. Best if used by 33 AD. <laughs> Better yet, must be used by 33 AD, right? It's, it's a shadow, anticipation. We don't want to live in the shadows and insult Christ. Well, he kind of takes the gloves off here, but he does so in a way that probably is more Jewish in mindset than we have, but I think we can work our way through it. Verse 10 says, We have an altar, which, by the way, is shocking and makes me feel threatened that I'm going to lose my job because I've been saying all through Hebrews, We don't have an altar. If you go to a church with an altar, leave. Because an altar assumes that you're making what? Sacrifices. We don't have an altar. We never want to have an altar. And he says, We have an altar. Man, got to do some editing on those sermons. Well, actually, I don't have to because he doesn't mean literally, but he's going to use that verbiage, which is going to be appealing if you're feeling pressure from the priestcraft, if you're feeling pressure from the Jews like they were about altars and food laws and intimidation kinds of things to get you to stop trusting solely in Christ. And he says, we have an altar, all right. Oh, all right. Let's learn about it. From which those who serve the tent, the priests, have no right to eat. This is is biting. He seems to be using altar here in, in a sense, again, shorthand for all that Christ has done because he's given himself up for us. He, as we've learned, he is our great high priest. He has made perfect atonement. We have an altar. And by the way, those who are trying to intimidate you, In the name of being priests, saying you need an altar? What did he say? They have no right to eat. They have no right to benefit. They have no right. It's it's a huge insult. Isn't it ironic? The very ones who are saying, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to have the altar. You've got to go through me because I'm a mediator. And the writer to Hebrews says, they have no right to benefit is really what he's saying. It's pretty hardcore. It's very serious. He's using Day of Atonement talk from Leviticus 16. And the Day of Atonement, you would have the animal's blood poured out and then put on the altar and then the animal would be taken outside of the city and it would be burned up and no one got to eat the meat. So he's using that kind of imagery um, that we're less aware of. Original audience would have been more aware of. They don't get a benefit. Verse 11 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Just elaborate on, elaborating on what happens on the Day of Atonement and what Jesus has done. But just know this for the record, that those who are trying to intimidate you have no rights before God to benefit from the altar that brings true atonement. But these kinds of things have no relevance for today, so being sarcastic. These things have a lot of relevance for today. The very one who wants to give you food laws, extra biblical laws, do this through me. Just know this text in Hebrews 13 says, the very one who's trying to intimidate you is the very one who does not have the right to access to God through an altar that you have. 
that's pretty hardcore, but it's also meant to encourage and sustain. I'm not going to be intimidated. For I know in whom I have believed that he is able, trusting in him. Now let's go to a fourth word. Suffer, suffer. Verse 13 says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. John 19 says Jesus was taken outside. He had to go outside of the city because he's a criminal. He's a blasphemer. He's going to be shamed and they're going to take him outside of the city and they're going to crucify him. And here he's saying, picking up on that thing, you know what? You, as you're feeling the pressure, as you're being persecuted, as you're not really sure what to do, you know what you need to do? You need to go have a meeting with Jesus. And where was he? He was outside the place no one would want to be. And so as you're persecuted, just go meet with Jesus there. And he understands and he knows. Number five, seek. That would be seek the coming city in verse 14. Again, persecution seems to be a context. It's suffering, difficulty in life. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We don't have much here. Oh, and, and things what we do have are hard. But you know what? We're not focused on the here and now as the ultimate end all. We're waiting for a city to come. We've got to remember this when we think somehow falsely that my life isn't seem, doesn't seem to be going very well and circumstances don't seem to be very good. And so therefore the gospel isn't true. No. We're waiting. We're anticipating something greater. Number six, sacrifice, sacrifice. I'm in jeopardy of losing my job again. If anything, in Hebrews, it's no more sacrifice, no more sacrifice, no more sacrifice. Atonement's been made. There doesn't need to be any more sacrifice. And now the pastor's going to stand up on a Sunday of all times and say, you all need to make sacrifices. Oh, by the way, perpetually. Say what? Well, we've been learning you don't make sacrifices. Christ fulfilled it. But here he's going to pick up on the terminology and say, we do make sacrifices. They're just of a different kind. Let's go ahead and see. Through him then, the one we meet outside of the camp, let us continually, that's just flying in the face of what we've been learning about how we don't want to have continual sacrifices because Christ did it once and for all. This is different. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's Fitting in light of Christ's perfect sacrifice. The only sacrifice we would make is praise to Him because He's done it all. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Boy, people who've named the name of Christ who are Christians, you know what we do? We praise God, praise God, praise God because we have a perfect sacrifice because we don't need to do sacrifices anymore. Our sacrifices, we're thankful. So we're having a sacrifice service today. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Isn't it interesting? Before, before salvation, our good works, our sacrifices, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. No one does good, no, not one. Romans chapter 10, Psalm 14. And now we have good works, sacrifices that God wants. It's because they've all gone through the sacrifice of Christ. And it means a total, total difference. Number seven, obey, obey. Specifically, leaders. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Oh, but back then, they, they really liked that kind of stuff. And today, it's really hard to tell people to obey or submit. Yeah, right. Have you read the Genesis account um, of Adam and Eve? But anyway, <laughs> he says, Obey and submit? I mean, come on already. 
Obey and submit. For they, they are keeping watch over your souls. Literally, they're going without sleep as those who will have to give an account. Here's how it works. We don't obey God. We reject God. We rebel against God, even though he established order to begin with, even with a husband and a wife. So we get redeemed, and God says, I want you to act like I'm God and acknowledge that there's leadership and there's order in this world. It's not a world of chaos. And so if you're a Christian, you say, I love Jesus. He's forgiven my sins. What should I do now? One of the things you should do is you should learn to be a submitter and an obeyer. Please know he's not saying, and so whatever the guy up front says you should do. Hey, (laughs) Kool-Aid. Dating myself with that ad. Remember earlier earlier we learned in chapter 13, your leaders who taught you the word of God. I have absolutely no authority in your life. And no other leader has any authority in your life to tell you what to do or how, you, how to think apart from telling you the word of God and what it says. So we have to remember that we have to be careful to not throw authority away, but we don't want it to be unbiblical authority either. And this may have been one of the issues that was going on with this Hebrews crowd and something we face, because remember, we're Protestants. In case you didn't know, we're Protestants. That means we're protesters, and we protest authority. These guys could have been listening to this letter being read the first time, and, oh, yeah, we had all this oppressive system, laws, things. You know what? We believe in one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and I'm perfect through him, and I trust only in him. I don't need authority. See, now, just a second. You're right, but there's a place for authority. Submit and obey your leaders. They're the ones who teach you the word of God. So we do want to acknowledge that and not be unbiblical either way because both would create problems. He says then in verse 17, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So usually you're going to have a hard time with authority because you think it's going to get something better for you and he's saying, look, it's not going to be better for you. God has established authority. You're bucking authority. And so you know what? It's not going to work out for better. So don't. It just makes sense. I think it's kind of interesting to think about this one. This might be my life verse. Groaning or joy. Let's pretend like I could be hooked up to some kind of weird meter. And you're going to go through the roll call of members of Omaha Bible Church. You know, green means joy, red means groan. And if your name was red, you know what? I would have an opinion. And I would either have joy or groan to one degree or another. And I'm not the leader, grand poobah, end all to end all kind of thing. But I don't know how to preach this without using real people in real terms. And I'm not the only pastor and I'm not the only leader and I submit to leaders too. So I'll ask myself, do I, do, am, I, am I a red light or a green light? Somebody said to me during the Sunday school hour, so tell me, am I red or green? I said, you are lukewarm. Never, I did <laughs> Take me out of the equation. Leaders think of you and me in one way or another, to one degree or another. 
You want to be a good follower. Not blind follower, but you want to be a good follower. Number eight now says pray. And obviously this is a specific prayer, but we, I think we could use it generally because we're generally called to pray. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I love that. We're sure of ourselves. We're confident. We're going to persevere to the end. Oh, by the way, would you pray for me? <laughs> Just a good tension, you know? Dependence is there, and so we pray in response to the gospel. Number nine, enjoy, let's say. Enjoy. Actually, I think 19 should go with number eight. I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you the sooner. Let's put that with prayer. Then let's go down to... 20 and following enjoy this is the benediction this is the blessing i just want to have god bless you because of the gospel now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant we've learned that's the new covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen That's called a benediction. I just want you to be blessed in light of the gospel. Blessing, blessing, blessing. That You'd be equipped for all of these things. Number 10, finally, greet. Greet. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Wink, wink, wink. You should, just like my sermons are brief in Hebrews, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all the leaders and all the saints, those who, who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Just a closing comment about that would be, I love the greetings at the end because they keep bringing us back, and I'll say this every time till I'm blue in the face, to being reminded that these greetings are there to encourage us that this is about real people. This is not about theological constructs that you have to kind of get your mind around. This is not just about a philosophy. This is about theology, yes, applied to real people like somebody named Timothy. Oh, by the way, be encouraged as you're praying for people who were imprisoned because of the faith. Timothy was apparently imprisoned. Oh, by the way, be encouraged. That's a sign of perseverance, genuine faith. Oh, by the way, be encouraged. If this is the same Timothy that Paul mentored, he was the timid one who struggled with being bold. And boy, he must have grown up spiritually through this because he was bold enough and had enough spiritual backbone to persevere to the point of being imprisoned. Ah, yeah, it's good. It's really good. Please walk away from Hebrews thinking Jesus is better. Reread Hebrews looking for the better word. Also, please walk away from Hebrews with this phrase from Hebrews. You want to persevere? You want to be devoted to Christ? Fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Not your circumstances, not your friends who let you down, not anything or anyone, but ultimately the answer is to rivet your focus, blinders on, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and it will all be well with you. Isn't Christ grand? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your great son, Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we are thankful that before he is King of kings and Lord of lords, when it comes to our 
hearts and our pleasure. He is our Savior. He is, even as Scripture says, He's our brother because He became one of us so He could live and die for us. And indeed, He is Lord, and indeed, He is King. Help us to worship Him. Help us to respond appropriately. Even now this morning as we have a unique opportunity to sing in response to what we've heard, may we sing like we haven't sung before. May we trust you to the very end. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.